You are listening to audio from the Decidedly Podcast. For more information, find us on Instagram at Decidedly Podcast. Welcome to episode 100. 100. 100. That's, that's kind of cool, isn't it? Yeah, we made it, you know. We started and getting one out there was kind of a big hurdle, and now we've done it a hundred times. I I looked at something the other day. There's over four million digital, there are over four million podcasts out there. Uh, it feels like it's it, 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 there's every, they're everywhere. There forty four percent of them though have less than three episodes. Well, hey, we're in the top almost half. <laughs> I saw, saw that that only eighteen percent uh, of the podcasts out there have more than ten episodes. Is there any threshold at 100? I couldn't find anything. The I, 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 or I looked, but it was I was doing it this morning, so I didn't have a lot of time. Well, let but, me tell you, if there's 4 million of you doing 100 of these, God bless, because it's been some work. What? But it's been really fun. We get to meet really cool people. We have met some cool... We've people. learned a lot of things. We've heard wonderful stories. We, I have, I've heard a lot. I have had so much interactions or so many interactions that I couldn't have gotten otherwise. I don't, oh, I don't think yeah, there's so many totally. people who would, who would not. Well, there's uh, a lot of people who would have never spoken to us if we didn't have microphones and cameras well, pointed at us. Most people wouldn't give us the time of day. Most people most people still don't talk to us. No. Um, I'm going to start carrying around my camera to, to parties to meet women. Wear your headphones. Yeah, wear my headphones. Yeah. Would you like to be on my podcast? <laughs> when I approach it. Let me know how that works out. Let me know how that works out for you. Um, Didn't go any worse. <laughs> <laughs> well, our guest today, I um, am so excited about Alex Johnston, he's the president and founder of Building Impact Partners, a philanthropy advising practice that has helped clients give away over $1 billion since its founding in 2012. He's a certified high-performance coach and has worked with dozens of donors, philanthropy advisors, and social entrepreneurs seeking impact and more joy in their lives. He's a member of Entrepreneurs Organization, which Sean and I are both members of as well. Hooray. And he serves on the boards of several nonprofits, including Faith Act for Education and the Trust for Learning. We talked about the issues that ultra high net worth families face when creating impact and creating philanthropic plans, how most people, regardless of net worth, simply write checks to the charities that they care about, but there's a much better way, how we can find meaning with impact to make future decisions that we make with our money much easier, purposeful, and create broader impact on the causes and organizations that we care about. Um, what Sean and I really learned is that the issues that ultra high net worth families face in creating impact with their money is the same issue that people all across the wealth spectrum face. Um, Alex is the author of a fantastic book called Money with Meeting, which shares the same name as a charity that Sean started and ran um, a decade yeah, and a half ago. ago. Yeah. So this was a great conversation. I think you're going to learn a lot by sticking around, whether you're an ultra high net worth family or struggling to make $20 donations uh, when the church offering plate comes around. Stick around. Enjoy episode 100. I'm Sanger Smith. As always, I'm with my dad, Sean Smith, and this is Decidedly. Um, 
So my my first question for you was really how do how do we get on the list of recommended charities for your clients? <laughs> well, that's a, that's a great question, Sanger. And uh, I guess I, first, I mean, you've given away a billion dollars. The so Sanger I, yeah. Foundation. I feel, I feel yeah, like you, I, you know, you need to set up a charity. A, there's yeah. a ticket to my impact is get to know Alex. Well, well let me nonprofit be to me for a long time. <laughs> <laughs> that billion dollars wasn't my money. However, that's important to say. <laughs> Um, so yeah, it's, it really is a great question though, because I think a lot of people who are trying to figure out, you know, how to raise money are really don't have an understanding of how philanthropy works and, um, having been, you know, running a nonprofit for seven years and then advising donors for the last 12 years, there's a lot of weird counterintuitive stuff about this world. And so happy to explore that and, and, uh, you know, perhaps if you do have a, a favorite charity, we can talk about it. Um, but it really is then a question of whether it lines up with the, you know, the donors that we're advising and whether that's something that's going to be meaningful to them. So, so back up a little bit. How did you get into this line of work? What were you doing before you got into advising on charities? Yeah. I mean, I guess I'd probably have to back up all the way, you know, without giving you my entire life story. Um, I grew up in Western Massachusetts in a town called Amherst. And um, I was just became very interested in how society works while I was in high school. Um, Amherst was a community with uh, a lot of affordable housing and much more racial and ethnic diversity than any other communities surrounding it. And so I, I just became from you know that high school age thinking about how does our country work? How does our society work? And why are we sometimes divided? What brings us together? And that led me to about spending about 10 years in the affordable housing arena, um, both in graduate uh, school. And then after I, I was director of operations at a housing authority. And so I've always had this interest in making the world a better place and trying to help people come together in ways that um, are meaningful to them. And that, you know, it's sort of an indirect path. But in about 2004, I started to feel like I was still downstream of where I could have the most impact. And I had a friend who was starting uh, a school at that time in New Haven, Connecticut, Amistad Academy, which became the Achievement First Network of Charter Schools. And they were just doing amazing things with some of the same students that were in the communities that I was working with in the Housing Authority. And that got me very interested in education. And because I had a doctorate in, in political science, maybe I thought I could be effective as an advocate. And uh, I, I helped to start an advocacy organization that uh -huh. I worked on education issues in Connecticut for about seven years. And now I'm getting to the part about how I got into philanthropy advising. When I was working for that advocacy organization, I realized the importance of resources, money, and how right. as broken as our political system sometimes feels, people with money put money into politics because it is actually effective at changing how policy gets made. And that got me very interested in philanthropy because philanthropy can be a resource engine for making the world a better place. It can also be a disastrous way to indulge individual whims and um, and things that are destructive. And so maybe I thought maybe I can contribute something to this space around helping donors be more effective, not only at achieving impact, you know, positive impact in the world, but also doing it in a way that's aligned with their values and is meaningful to them. Were you finding that a lot of people were seeking out political campaign contributions in, in wanting to direct their philanthropy dollars that way? Well, most people, when they think about philanthropy, don't think about political giving as part of philanthropy. Right. But I think some of the most sophisticated donors 
to the extent that they're interested in changing public policy, whether you care, whatever the issue is, whether it's climate, education, sure. homelessness, so many of these major issues connect back to decisions we make about how to spend public resources. And so no matter the wealthiest people in the world, no matter how wealthy the rest of us think they are, their resources are tiny compared to the big public systems and the big decisions that are made about how to allocate resources. And so certain donors are thinking, hey, I can use philanthropy as a way to influence the policymaking process and direct the the flow of public dollars. And already, right at the start of this conversation, we're talking about one of the most controversial aspects of philanthropy, because a lot of people feel like, why should ultra wealthy people with a lot of resources be able to influence our political system? We live in a democracy, one person, one vote. Why should money matter and and be able to shape public policy? And I guess I feel like, um, you know, it reminds me of the quote that Winston Churchill had when he said, democracy is the worst form of government, except for all the others. And when I think when I think about the role of philanthropy, philanthropy has tremendous downsides and it can be used in very destructive ways. And yet having well-intentioned people who are independent of the public sector engage in policy change, how are we going to change systems that don't work? I mean, when I was at a housing authority, it took 93 days to close a work order when I started my job there. That's unacceptable. And yet that system can go on and on and on for years and years and years. And if there, there isn't an independent way to engage in the policymaking process, it, it's not clear that a lot of our systems that are intended to serve people actually will, will do that because they get captured by other interests and serve those interests instead. Well, maybe in a utopian sense of what ought to be the case, it wouldn't be the reality that, that wealthier people have more of a say because they have more dollars than, than people who don't have those resources. But in the reality that we live in, that is the case. And I, I don't see a way that it could not be the case, right? Because if you removed money from, uh, remove the ability of dollars to have influence over public policymaking, it, it would not be the case that everyone has an equal vote. And it wouldn't be the case that nobody has a vote. It would be the case that money no longer is the is one of the influencing factors and it would be power, right? So... I, I no, think that it's, it's, it's influence or money or it, it's always it's all there's always going to be an, an imbalance of influence and and where that influence is sourced if it's not money it would simply be power uh, and then you'd be back probably in the same spot yeah well <laughs> so this may be the the hopeful person in me but um, I see some donors stepping up to actually help build power on the part of parents um, other advocates. You know, people who don't necessarily have a lot of financial resource, but creating spaces where those leaders can amplify their voice and influence policy. And so, again, this is a tricky thing because certainly could billionaires engage in politics in a way that is self-interested? Certainly some some have been accused of doing that and probably some have. But there are lots of stories. Pro- but, you, know, you, think, you think probably, you think <laughs> probably certain, that happened? Yeah. Um, <laughs> But there are lots of stories that don't get told as much about how philanthropy, which sometimes comes from people who are incredibly wealthy, are creating opportunities for others to engage in the policymaking process and amplifying other people's voices. What do you, when you talk with somebody who is looking at making a charitable donation, a sizable charitable donation, how are you getting connected with those people? How are people finding somebody like you to do that advisory? 
Well, I think the first thing to say is that the vast majority of ultra wealthy individuals don't have advisors when it comes to their giving. They're doing checkbook philanthropy just like the rest of us. And and I think it's, you know, it's sort of peeling the onion a little bit, understanding who are the really wealthy people in, in our society? How did they get that way? Um, you know, there's some really surprising stuff. Uh, first of all, if, if we're talking about this designation, ultra high net worth, you guys as wealth advisors probably are familiar with this. You may have talked about it on the show before, but there are different ways of measuring it. But usually $30 million in investable assets is considered ultra high net worth. And there are about 100,000 people in the U.S. who have that level of resource. Collectively, those 100,000 people have $11.2 trillion in wealth. And each year they give away about $85 billion of that $11 trillion. So that's about three quarters of 1%. $85 billion is a lot of money. Um, I, I personally believe there's, there's the opportunity for individual giving by the ultra high net worth to be higher. And in fact, I know from talking to a number of them that many of them have philanthropic intentions. They're not gearing up their giving as rapidly as they thought they would. And I wrote this book, Money with Meaning, um, to address that challenge, to really try to make available the tools, templates, frameworks that we use when we're advising and coaching donors so that people who want to do this on a DIY basis can do that. Because getting back to what I was saying, very few of those 100,000 people have made the choice to hire a philanthropy advisor. And so if many of them are really doing this on a DIY basis and the other thing that's really surprising about who these people are to many Americans is that about 75% of ultra high net worth individuals are self-made. They started from working or middle-class background themselves and in their own lifetime, they accumulated that level of resources. Only 7% of them fully inherited all the money that made them ultra high net worth. And another 20% or so inherited something, but then grew it substantially. And so the ultra high net worth are, are entrepreneurs. They're people who built something in their own lifetime and they bring that mindset very often to their giving, which is both a blessing and sometimes a challenge. What's the biggest problem that you're helping those people overcome? Because in my experience talking with, with people, I can identify several mental roadblocks to gifting. People who maybe aren't high net, ultra high net worth or haven't had those conversations might say, Geez, Alex, what's the problem? These people have tons of money. You're telling me they can't figure out how to write a check? Yeah. Well, I think the biggest challenge that people have is making the transition from checkbook philanthropy to something else. And so when I say checkbook philanthropy, I mean what most of us do when we're giving money away. We uh, Maybe we are part of a faith community. We've made a pledge there. That's the most common thing that uh, regular folks are giving to. Um, but often we're getting direct mail. We're meeting people. We get inspired. We see something on TV. We want to take action. There's a disaster. We, we give some money to the Red Cross. We're responsive, reactive even. And we just write a check. And then you know what? Most of us don't worry about whether that check is turning into impact. Most people who are writing checks and giving away hundreds or thousands of dollars a year, it's just one other household expense. And it's not something people spend a lot of yeah. time on. But when people get to that ultra high net worth category, Sometimes that's no longer satisfying to them because the size of the checks they're writing. Remember, if they started out as working in middle class, $50,000, $100,000 feels like a huge amount of money. You should be able to know that your money is making a difference on the issues that you care about. And that's where people get hung up um, because in order to know <laughs> that your donation is having its intended impact, 
you need to get more involved in some way. And maybe you want to hire an advisor, but maybe you start spending more time when you're giving. And then before you know it, your giving starts to feel like a chore. And, and so a lot of people who have a lot of capacity end up doing less giving because they are struggling with this question of how can I know for sure that my money is making the difference that I hope it will. So you think that's what's holding them up? Now, you mentioned the, the statistic that they're giving away, the ultra high net worth people are giving away. I think you said three quarters of 1%. Yeah, 85 billion, which is three quarters of 1% of their wealth. So that seems, how does that stack up to the general populace in terms of percentage giving? Yeah, it's a great question. And if we think in terms of wealth, it's a little bit um, harder to figure because the proportion of wealth that uh, lower wealth people have is much less relative to you know, so um, I think that another interesting lens to think about it is if you put money in a foundation, like a private foundation, you're legally required right. to give away 5% per year. And so right. you could right. look at that and say, oh, well, you know, the ultra wealthy are being less generous than they should be because foundations have to give away 5% and they're only giving away three quarters of 1%. But that's not an entirely fair comparison because a lot of that wealth is in closely held, privately held companies, it's invested in businesses, it's being used to produce additional economic output, and it's not it's not liquid. But there is some interesting work that's been done by, say, Tiger 21, which is a, a network of ultra high net worth entrepreneurs who've had successful exits. And they survey their members every year about how they allocate their assets. And what they consistently find is that ultra high net worth people who are members of Tiger 21, about a thousand people globally, they put about 11, 12 percent in cash and about 20% in publicly traded stocks. The rest is in real estate and other illiquid holdings. And so if we think that about a third of that $11 trillion might be in liquid assets, then you say, well, if we're thinking about that liquid portion, what portion of that is being given away? And that's probably a, a more realistic base to consider. So I hope that's not getting too technical, but no, that that makes sense. No, that yeah, makes if, sense. If, if a lot of the it, wealth it, is is tied up in illiquid assets, then it's not it's not available for distribution for these things. Right. right. I mean, there, the, it, it would be unfair for the average uh, for us to judge the gifting of a average school teacher by including the value of her home in her annual gift. Exactly, and so that's why we think about income when we're thinking about what most people are doing in their giving. What percentage of their income are they giving away, and yeah, that that always uh, rubs, you know, grinds my gears when I'll see someone criticize a billionaire and say, Mark Zuckerberg gave away $100 million. And based on me making 50000 a year, that's like me giving away 20 bucks. Well, wait, wait a second. Yeah, right. <laughs> you just you just changed the comparison. You're judging him based on his wealth and you based on your income. There's some threshold where we start judging people based on their wealth and not their yeah. income any longer. But, but it is important to say that, you know, um, if, I mean, and you guys are wealthy buyers, so it'd be, I'd be interested in your take on this. But my understanding of what wealth advisors often advise ultra high net worth people, like let's say you sold a business for $100 million. So now you're in that ultra yeah. high net worth group and you want to live on the proceeds of the sale. You're typically, there used to be something called the 4% rule, you know, it was thinking about retirement savings and hey, whatever you mm-hmm. save, you can spend 4% and you won't outlive uh, your resources. What I often hear is that people who've had an exit like that and are sitting on $100 million, most people in America would say, awesome, like 
you've got a lot of money to give away. But if you want to maintain that that wealth, you're often advised to spend no more than 2% of it. So now you have $2 million of income. And you're and if you're doing checkbook philanthropy, your giving is coming out of that $2 million. And if you sold a business for $100 million, chances are you were probably taking home more than $2 million. So you, in effect, are experiencing less available income. Now, there's a psychological aspect of giving that I think really gets under addressed. And so many donors are they haven't ever had a conversation with themselves about what is the meaning of my money? Why have I accumulated all of this? And what is its purpose in my life? And, and what can it do for other people? And so, you know, I think it's really important to look at wealth stance. And, and that's really like, I think about three orientations. There's the aspire and acquire stage of life when you're trying to grow your wealth. There's the manage and maintain where maybe you sold a business. Now you have that hundred million, you're trying to hold on to it. And then there's the distribute and dispense orientation to your wealth, where you said, you know what, I have $100 million. My kids are taken care of. I don't need to, you know, I can take 50 million of this 100 million and say, I'm giving that away. And now maybe I should hire an advisor because I want to be sure that that $50 million is not just going to disappear in a bottomless well of nonprofit fundraising. And so those are the kinds of um, clients that, that might come to us because they've gotten to a place in their life where they realized, Hey, I don't actually have deep experience with giving money away. I'm, I was great at making money, um, but now I'm in a place in my life where I want to give it away. Yeah, the, um, the there's some nuance on the the four percent or the two percent, obviously based on dep- depending on age and and other factors that are important to people. But you're right in in general, um, the the level of income that we can derive off of any given size portfolio is often disappointing to most people when you, you know, when I translate a lump sum into income, it always seems a lot more disappointing than it should. Um, So that's not surprising that people feel that way. Hey, oh, even at a hundred million dollars, I have a lot less ability than I expected. Unless I'm willing to see that 100 turn to 90, turn to 80, turn to 70 and, and so forth over time, which people at all wealth levels are uncomfortable with, right? Uh, nobody wants to see nobody wants money. a capital depletion model right? nobody wants yeah. a capital depletion plan some people based on on their their means and capacity are forced to accept a capital depletion plan and that's what most of america um retires on is is they their their reality is seeing their dollar amount go down steadily over time and hopefully it reaches zero after they're gone. Yeah, but I think that's an interesting assumption. It's really shaped in my experience. That that view of like, hey, I really don't want to spend down my principal is deeply shaped by working in middle class values. And so it's it's so important yes. to understand where the ultra high net worth have come from in what Jim Grubman, he's got a great book called Strangers in Paradise. And he uses this, he's a wealth psychologist, he uses this metaphor of an immigration journey because so many of the ultra high net worth started out in a different cultural context. They started out as working or middle class. And there's a bunch of things that that are bedrock values in working middle class families. And I grew up in a middle class family, right? One, you don't talk about money. Two, um, you're careful with money. Um, And so the idea, you know, my mom was a school teacher and um, unfortunately she died when she was 73. She retired at 62. And that entire time she was worried about outliving her her 
savings. And so it's, yeah. it's a psychological orientation that even if you have built a business and have $100 million, if you grew up in a household where, where your money values were shaped in that way, it's, it's a big leap to say, I got $100 million. I'm not going to run out of money. I, and literally, I mean, I don't know if you do these exercises with your clients. You walk through the contingencies. What if I have a major illness? What if, you know, three of my brothers and sisters, you know, need me to buy a house for them or, or whatever it is. And, and $100 million is still a whole lot of money if you are willing to spend it down. And, and the other piece is that we, we often think, like, how does that work? That if, if 72, 75% of ultra high net worth people are self-made, why isn't more money being passed down across time? And this is a great observation from Jim Grubman's book. Because of this avoidant uh, money culture that people come from, they don't talk about it with their kids and they don't actually create uh, functional communication. So when you're having um, generational transitions in very wealthy families, you see a lot of wealth get dissipated because people aren't actually communicating at the level that's needed to maintain wealth. And of course, as a philanthropy advisor, oh, yeah. I want people to give it away uh, as much as I want. To. I mean, I, you know, I'm not into dynastic wealth as you know, the, the end goal here. Um, but there's a whole lot of dysfunction around money. And that shows up in my world in philanthropy advising as well. There's a lot, there's a, a lot of um, emotions that prevent people from both gifting, gifting and having a positive impact with their wealth. And a lot of emotions that prevent people from having that impact stay with in their family, if that's what they chose. And I think you're, you're right that it comes down to being willing to think about it and talk about it openly, um, which most people were raised not to do. Most people live their life and earn their money not to do or not doing. And so a lot of people, they find themselves in a place later in life where a lot of mindsets that they carried through their younger years and working years served them well, and now they have a lot of money. Well, those mindsets, those characteristics, those skills aren't necessarily helpful in this next stage of life where they're a steward of capital that when they haven't been before. And I know it's not exclusive to people with $100 million, right? It, it, right. It, that scales up and down. It scales yeah. up and down. There's people with more money than that that have the same problem. And there's people with a lot less money than that that have the same problem. I mean... I've met people with a million dollars to their name who will never run out of money, you know, unless they radically change their lifestyle or develop a, an addiction of some sort. And yet they still cannot get past this idea of, I don't want to spend my principal. doesn't matter. And, and a lot of them don't even spend the interest, <laughs> you know? So I know at all well, ranges, people who, who are resistant to adopting that mindset, but I, I, you, you hit on something, which is what is the meaning for your money? And that I like that we're talking about ultra high net worth because I think it gives people, it highlights the need for these conversations more because if, if someone's listening to this and they've got $10 million, I think their immediate reaction is, Oh, well, how could you not know you have a hundred million dollars? How could you be worried about spending it all? How could you not feel comfortable? Somebody's thinking that about you. Yeah. 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 That's what somebody <laughs> yeah. with 1 million is thinking about yeah. you with 10. Yeah. Million. That's a right. great observation right. because something I've observed is there is an incredible awareness among high net worth individuals about the gradations, the differences between them. And so, you know, we, we know some troubling research that, uh, 
something like 50% of all Americans don't have $400 to use in an emergency, right? So that's like, think yeah. about that. Held against, you know, there are so many people who have a million dollars or more who don't personally consider themselves affluent. And, and so, um, and yet they are, right? Um, the, the question then becomes the psychology of wealth. And, um, and that's why, you know, five, six years ago, I really started coaching as, you know, as much as we do advising with our clients, I also began coaching, really looking at the issue of psychology and mindset and the connection of thoughts, feelings, and actions, because, you know, to be a strategic advisor, it's sort of framing the problem as, hey, my client just doesn't know what to do. And if I make a strategic recommendation, then they'll, they'll do it and we're good. But, you know, what you were just saying, Sanger, is it, for you as a wealth advisor, right, you can do all of the strategy. But if you give someone your recommendation and their mindset is not aligned, their identity is not aligned with that, the action that you're recommending, guess what? They're not going to do it. <laughs> and and, and right. so you have to engage at a different level if you're looking to help people make shifts of that kind. I, I think one of the things that happens is a lot of the habits and and beliefs about somebody's relationship with money is what got them to that point of of wealth at whatever wealth you're looking at, and so they're unlikely to change that because a lot of people's relationship to wealth is a is about what does this provide to me, what does this wealth provide me, and for a lot of people it is security, it is freedom, it is. Uh, independence or power or whatever it's whatever they're getting from that level of wealth and and they are or reluctant it's the approval of their parents yeah whatever it is who are not who are not living anymore and and so there is a i think a natural reluctance to amplify the what you were talking about the checkbook giving the current giving and shift a lot of that to plan giving well when i'm done with this then other people can have it. When I'm done with this and it goes through my estate, I'm more free and willing to give it to charity. But until then, I need to hold on to it because that is how I'm measuring my own security. Yeah. That is how I'm measuring my own worth. I don't want to lose it. Yeah. And so I think that's the mindset you probably struggle with. I'm Alex, I've, I've helped a lot of my clients sell their business, receive a large lump sum of capital that they now manage. And oftentimes it's more than what they'll ever need to be able to retire. They're going to be fine. They're not going to run out of money. And I have these conversations with them because I see, Hey, we have an opportunity for impact here. We have an opportunity to do something other than have you die with a lot of money left here, which is what's going to happen. Um, and people are really receptive to, a slow, uh, the slow process that it takes them to expand their ideas of what they could do while they're alive, right? Maybe they had a, a, a vision of their lifestyle after they sold their business. And then we realize, hey, you have double the amount of money. And they go, oh, well, I guess I could buy that home or the car or the travel more or do these things. But when it comes to philanthropic impact, people are, like Sean said, very resistant in my experience. And and I know the answer is if they could find the money, their the the meaning of their money, they would be more open um, psychologically to exploring that within their own life and not exclusively going down the plan giving route. How do you help people find that meaning with their? Well, money? that's really why I wrote the book because in my advising practice, I kept observing exactly the phenomenon you just described, Sanger, that um, people with an intention to be philanthropic, like 
let's say a couple in their mid fifties, um, they've got $250 million. They know they're giving it away and they have done the math and they need to triple their rate of annual giving. They're already sitting on the boards of local nonprofits, other cultural institutions. They want to work on issues around economic growth and racial equality in the, in a state where they grew up, not where they're living right now. And like actually gearing up to do that ends up, it's like a kitchen renovation project that you don't get around to, you know? Um, and, and so the book is really uh, almost like a self-implementation guide to the kinds of things we do with clients. And one of the ideas is that there are these design fundamentals uh, for your giving. We call them the 10 W's for donors, starting with worldview, wealth stance, wealth stock, like what, what kind of resources do you have? Not just money. You may have political capital, intellectual capital, other things to give away. Why, what, where, when, all of that. Um, and really an opportunity to, in conversation, I mean, there are worksheets and everything that go with this, but the way we use this in conversation is just walking through these, some of these fundamental questions to help people figure out how can my money really be meaningful? And are there issues that I really care about? Are there places that I really care about? Um, and how do I think about time? Do I want to influence you know, where these resources go during my own lifetime? Or do I want to create a legacy in some way that my family carries on? There, these are questions that a lot of people just in the process of accumulating the wealth never took the time to consider. And yeah. they're bringing this entrepreneurial psychology into the arena of giving. Uh, but Singer, you're, you're raising the point that for a lot of people, philanthropy just isn't even something they're really thinking about. Um, and, you know, those people never find their way to me and my practice and my partners at Building Impact Partners. <laughs> but, they, but you may be talking to, uh, to, to a number of them. Well, I want them to find their way there. You know, I, I, I agree with you that, that um, philanthropy is good. And we have, I, I would say even further, we have a responsibility to be a good steward of the capital that we have to maximize the, the impact of it. Um, and that doesn't necessarily mean giving as much away as possible. It means giving it in purposeful ways and, and using that capital to get, get your voice heard and, and be more involved on the, the, the ground level of work that you believe is important, whatever. There's so many creative ways to use wealth to create an impact. Um, but it is a challenge for a lot of people to think, think of themselves doing that. I, I think one of the things when people look at charitable giving, when we're talking about current giving, that if they can get to a point of of peace and that they're going to be okay. I, I think that's the first thing that people want, that sort of level of security at, at the beginning. And then connecting their desire for significance, because everybody I've talked to, there is, there's a deep ingrained desire for significance, and they have this tool, which is their their wealth, their ability to give of their time and energy and treasures, however they're doing it. So it may not just be wealth. It could be their, their time and energy and, and volunteering. People want to connect with a point of significance. Um, and, and I haven't, I've met only a few people that don't, but most everybody does. And so I, I think when we look at our wealth, we, we look at this as our stewardship. This was brought to us. It's our wealth is, is not ours. It's, it's God's and it's our role to 
transfer that wealth to its greatest and highest purpose. And looking at how we do that giving is, is key. But the, the question is, how do people, I, I think one of the things that, that causes people hesitancy is that uncertainty that of, of how they want that impact to manifest itself. How they, maybe there's so many choices, I don't know where to give, or I'm not sure it's going to go to its, its highest purpose. How do you start that conversation? I mean, what's the first question you ask? Get somebody to a point of understanding what they want that impact to be so that they can make a good informed decision. Yeah. So literally in chapter one of the book, which is called taking stock, it's about two questions, you know, and the first is how much impact do you feel like you're having with your giving so far? And the second is what's your level of satisfaction? How much fulfillment are you experiencing through your giving? And what that leads to is a framework where we have social impact. Like imagine a two by two, right? Where social impact is one axis. And the other is the sense of fulfillment for the donor. And meaningful giving is where social impact and fulfillment for the donor come together. That's the sweet spot where we all want to be in our giving. But there are three other possibilities, right? There's selfish giving, which is, hey, we're not producing impact out in the world, but I'm personally excited about it. And and that is almost like stuff that masquerades as philanthropy, but it's really like a purchase. Like, you know, I'm going to give $50 million to this private school. We're going to name the gym after my family and my kids are going to go there and get in. And right. And it's maybe there's some justifiable philanthropic aspect, but a lot of it is really about personal benefit. Then there's spiritless giving where I'm just driving so hard for impact that I've lost touch with relationships, with even my own values. And I'm, I'm just like, it's all about metrics and milestones. And and then there's um, senseless giving, which is producing neither positive impact nor a sense of fulfillment. And there's an incredible amount of giving that falls into that category. Like you invited me to your dinner party. So now I guess um, I'm going to ask you to show up at my charity gala. And it's and what's going on is not producing much impact and it's not meaningful for the donor. Yeah, we're just trading a few hundred bucks. Right. Or around. even these might be larger checks or thousands, but, but it's but not. It's, yeah, it's not. Meaningful. Right. And and the causes that it's benefiting are not something that is socially impactful or personally meaningful. And there is an incredible amount of giving that happens, especially, you know, when people realize, hey, that person is ultra high net worth. They start getting asked. And so the other thing that happens to ultra high net worth donors is they, they get overwhelmed with incoming. And so they, they clam up. They stop talking to people about the possibility of giving because they don't want to say no. And then they don't learn about um, things they would really be excited about because they just shut it yeah. all down. Um, and so it, it is really important to consider both impact and your sense of fulfillment. And um, many donors get stuck. They never make it to meaningful giving. And they kind of give up on giving and, and they're sort of put it off to another day when meanwhile, the world is literally and metaphorically on fire. <laughs> you know, there are so many important things that need philanthropic capital and so many amazing social entrepreneurs, nonprofit leaders out there who don't have the level of resources they need at every stage from seed to scale. And so one of the core ideas in the book is that there are there are six alternatives to strategic philanthropy. And we haven't talked about strategic philanthropy yet, but that's another really important thing that many high capacity donors encounter, which is this idea that 
like the Gates Foundation. You should professionalize. You should hire a staff. You should develop a theory of change, your own strategy. You should be the entrepreneur in, in your giving. And you should hire, in effect, uh, your nonprofit grantees to carry out this strategy out in the world. And that can be an impactful way to give, but it's very demanding for the donor. And, yeah. and there, for, there are many, many people who don't want to do that, but they kind of absorb this message that if you don't really gear up like that, what you're doing is wasteful. It's not rigorous. You're not really going to have an impact. And that's just not true. Uh, there are a bunch of alternative ways that you can be deeply engaged in your giving and produce extraordinary impact. And that's a, a central message of the book, that there are alternatives. And, you know, your giving doesn't have to feel like a chore. It's okay to actually consider what's personally fulfilling for you, along with what's going to produce impact out in the world. Yeah, I think one thing that a lot of people are surprised, uh, you tell me if you've experienced this as well, is when they get into that um, philanthropy arena is that they are caught off guard by the keeping up with the Joneses that was present in every other social area they were in, right? You were maybe more likely to buy the Porsche because you were going to the country club and seeing the the nice cars that your buddies were driving. And then you get into, you know, being able to have major impact with large gifts and kind of this keeping up with the Joneses uh, on gifting that could cause you to, to come off the rails just like buying a car you didn't really want or need. Um, and cause you to give, get off the rails of your own philanthropy point. Well, I don't know if, if uh, anyone listening uh, has ever watched the show Billions, but there's a, there's a, you know, it's about a hedge fund guy who's made it big. And, um, and there's a point in the show where he's basically getting into this conversation about naming something after himself. Like he's going to give money uh, to get something named after him. Yeah. And there's this super like hard edge negotiation that takes place behind the scenes between the leader of the nonprofit and um, and the hedge fund guy about the naming rights. And so, yeah, I think there is this whole aspect of philanthropy that can be very transactional and, and just kind of surprise people, donors, by the feelings it inspires in them of competition and, and sort of um, worries about what other people will think of them. And that's really actually a turnoff to a huge number of donors. And it's another yeah. reason why people leave their money on the sidelines, because they see stuff they feel like is icky or not aligned with the way they want to show up. And they're like, I want nothing to do with that. And, and again, that's only one aspect of, um, of philanthropy. And there are so many alternative ways you can show up where you can be in real relationships with extraordinary leaders. And you can be, you can just have this deep sense that your money is making a difference um, when you're backing specific people who are taking on big challenges, even if they're not ultimately successful. I mean, you know, the biggest risk I feel like for ultra high net worth donors is not that they give their money to something that doesn't make a difference. It's that they don't give their money away. They end up with senseless giving. And and that and what is more senseless in a world where so many compelling needs abound than to be sitting on a pool of capital that when you really do the math, you know, is not actually going to, you don't need it. And so there's an exercise that we do with clients. And I'm curious if you guys do a variation of this, where we sit people down and we say, Let's actually chart out your net worth from the entire course of your life and project it through to when you anticipate dying. This is like a, a kind of a fraught exercise for people yeah. to do. But just imagine, okay, you think you're going to live to 90. What do you want your net worth to be on the day you die? And then we make another line, which is what amount of philanthropic giving do you want to do every year? And what's fascinating is the shapes of these curves are often completely illogical. They don't correspond, right? Because if your net worth is going to keep going up and up and up, 
um, and you expect your giving to keep going up. Like some people don't think think through the fact that if they really want to ramp up their giving, their net worth might go down. And the most yeah. famous example of this is Chuck Feeney of Atlantic Philanthropies. He's the founder of Duty Free Shops. He gave away $8 billion and he and his wife are still alive. They live in San Francisco and reportedly he left only $2 million for himself and his wife to live on. And so that's, you almost never see that where someone's net worth goes up like that and then it goes all the way down almost to zero and their giving ramps up hugely and then goes to zero too because they gave it all away. That's an extremely unusual pattern. Yeah, well, the, I, I, think the, it, I think it goes to the, the issue we were talking about earlier is, is that people are seeking a lot of comfort security initially. When, when you look at, you know, and, and I, I think this issue scales up and down, as we were talking about before, what do you think is the biggest decision that people have to make when they're looking at the issue of current giving that they struggle with? Yeah, I think, let's say we're talking about, you know, people with some sense of surplus, right? Um because I think the issues are different. There are some, some of the most extraordinary philanthropy is, you know, the widows might like literally from, from scripture, you know, people yeah. who have almost nothing and who are giving at you know, an extraordinary level that's sacrificial. And just imagine if you applied that to some, some of the wealthiest. But, but I think for people who maybe are living comfortably, um, it really is this question around your stance towards your wealth. Like, and I find people just, have not typically reflected on this. And this, I, I'm a member of the EO, the Entrepreneurs Organization. I love entrepreneurs. I am an entrepreneur. And I think we are so anchored in the aspire and acquire relationship with our wealth. We're always growing. Like that is such the entrepreneur's mindset. And, and so there's this big barrier that comes, even as we're still growing our enterprise and maybe our wealth has increased, it's mostly on paper, but our income has increased as well. And, and our giving doesn't keep pace. Um, and, and it's, it's honestly a big source of misalignment because we're, you know, I believe in human nature is positive. Most people are good people. Most people are actually surrounded by people and, and, uh, causes and organizations where their money really could make a difference. And, and yet for many people, it's an afterthought and there's such a psychological opportunity there. It's going to be such a tremendous source of fulfillment and, you mentioned earlier, Sean, the need for significance, you know, in the human needs psychology, which goes back to Alfred Adler, Abraham Maslow, and more recently, Chloe Madonis and Tony Robbins. This need for significance is, is for sure uh, a key need, but there it's really one of the lower level or ego driven needs. You know, we have certainty, um, variety or novelty, significance and social connection with other people. But there are these higher level needs like contribution to others, um, personal growth, and even self-transcendence that are, those are the, when you meet those higher level needs, that's really what a life of fulfillment is about. You know, when you look across cultures, religious traditions, philosophical traditions, there's such convergence around this idea that when we give, we are growing and learning and we are transcending ourselves. And it's, it's kind of, it's an extraordinary way to live. And yet I think many people are missing out on that because they're still in this striving mode where ultimately that's rooted in fear and scarcity. And so we do a lot around sort of levels of consciousness and helping people get to a more evolutionary psychology where they can be more flexible and adaptive in how they meet those needs. 
and realize that philanthropy can be an amazing way to meet your higher level needs. What types of questions are you asking that help people sort of break through to get to those higher levels of consciousness and connectivity to the sort of larger purpose? Yeah. I mean, there's a whole uh, chapter three in the book, uh, which walks through these 10 W's. Um, there's a, one of the W's is why. And there's a set of 12 questions there that really get at, you know, why are you giving? And, and each of those questions is linked to one of those human needs. So it's kind of a way of understanding which of your needs is do you, like, do you need to be totally certain about the impact of your giving? That means you, you're meeting your need for certainty through your giving. Um, are you really focused on learning and, and growth through your giving? And, you know, just being aware of it doesn't necessarily change it. Um, and, and so that's also why I find that coaching one-on-one work can be really, I work with a coach. I will never, I will live my entire life. I will always have a coach. <laughs> Sometimes I have more than one coach. Um, I just am a big believer that um, we are always have this potential to grow and actualize ourselves. And uh, we can't see our own blind spots. It's part of the human condition. And so working with someone else who can um, and has this sort of independence to help us and ask challenging questions, you know, is, I think, a huge gift we can give ourselves. You were talking before we got on air about a decision tool that you you had developed. Tell me more about yeah, that. Um, it's a, I call it a critical decision-making toolkit. And um, I developed it really to help myself um, because a lot of times when we face high stakes decisions, we get caught in kind of false binaries where we just think like, man, I'm going to mess this up. You know, I know for me as an entrepreneur, um, you know, making decisions about the business sometimes, like if you're bringing in partners or you're, you know, structuring things that are legally set up and have a sense of permanence to them, it feels like a high stakes decision. And um, I went to an event that Tony Robbins uh, leads, uh, maybe the summer of 2017, came across a framework uh, that he called OOCEMR. Um, and I took that framework and kind of adapted it, evolved it for myself in my own context. And I began using that with people I was coaching. And it just became really powerful tool that I used with, uh, with coaching clients. And so uh, I created sort of turned it into a, a digital playbook, if you will. And it walks through this template. It's a worksheet that, you know, you put decisions on paper and I'm not going to lie. It takes like an hour or three hours to really work through. But if you're thinking about buying a house or whatever it is, um, and you find yourself feeling like I'm, I have these two options and neither one of them feels like I'm totally aligned. That's the perfect time when you want to bring out a tool like that. And I'm certainly happy. I can share a link with you guys, you know, happy to just give that to your listeners if that will be helpful to them. I'm, you know, like you guys, I'm on a mission for better decision making out in the world and uh, would be happy to share that resource. What do you find is the critical question in that in that tool that really helps advance the decision? I think there are a couple of things, but one is really getting clear about the ultimate outcomes that you're interested in. And, and then a force ordered ranking of how important each of those outcomes is. Because a lot of times what happens when we have a high stakes decision is we start spinning. We, we, it's too complex to hold all the factors in our mind, but we wake up in the middle of the night and we're churning through it again and again. And so uh, putting things on paper is just a real breakthrough when it comes to that. And then I think another really key insight, which um, is part of Tony Robbins' original framework is this idea of mitigating the downside. So when you look at the options you have, often you want to dismiss some out of hand because it's just the downside is unacceptable. But that's actually something to lean into. 
If you can figure out how to make the downside less unacceptable, now you might even be talking about creating an option you hadn't previously considered. And so there's gold in uh, sort of looking at before you dismiss something outright, look at why you're dismissing it and then see if there's something you could do to make it a more attractive option. And very often you end up with a third or a fourth or a fifth option you hadn't even considered. So how, how would you take something? Give me an example. So so if there's a downside I want to avoid, you know, if I do this, I might lose my house, for example. Right. Um, how do I turn some of that unacceptable negative into a, into a positive? Yeah. So um, let's, I'll use an example in philanthropy. So let's say someone's considering a a major gift. And um, one of the things they're worried about is, you know, how will I know that, um, that that money is actually going to make a difference. Once I give it away, I've lost control of it. Um, And, and so one, one thing to think about is like, well, if you're worried about losing control, like what is it? Why do you think you need the control? What's really underneath that? And it's this idea that, well, maybe that institution I'm giving the money to is just going to um, spend it on stuff I don't care about or even something that's not aligned with me. And so then you could say, well, I could I could give the gift in a conditional way. And so now now we're into a third option, because if the if originally you're thinking of either I give this money or I don't. Now you can say, well, there's some ways in which I could structure this gift that um, mean that the institution I'm giving it to will have to follow certain rules. Now, I don't actually typically recommend restricting gifts. I think a lot of times unrestricted gifts are a much better Organizations way to go. hate that. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and, and I think, but the point of the, the tool is just that um, we often dismiss things without fully considering why. And when we really peel the onion of why we don't want to do something, um, there we actually have more agency than we think to um, avoid the downside. Okay. What What would you say would be the the biggest single decision making tip you would have for uh, business owners, leaders, people who are considering philanthropy? Might be helpful. Make decisions. You know, I think one of the biggest. I agree yeah. with that so much. Oh my gosh. Yeah. People, people <laughs> You're avoid decisions because of yes. the emotional baggage that they carry. And so people are carrying around intentions that have never been actualized through the process of making decisions. Leadership, uh, contribution to others, all of it happens because you make decisions. And the worst thing is not to make a decision. And that is why there's so much money sitting on the sidelines. People have formed an intention to be philanthropic but they've not decided how. And, and that it just doesn't have to be that way. Um, and, you know, I think that a lot of times we think the risk is that, oh, well, the money will be wasted. Well, go back to that decision-making tool. There's so many ways that you can engage creatively. You could form mm-hmm. a deep relationship with an entrepreneur where you're having a conversation with them every month. You're not leaning in to tell them what to do, but you're actually leveraging your own intellectual capital social capital as an entrepreneur. There's so many ways that you can show up in your giving that aren't just about your money uh, that actually make it more effective. But the biggest issue that I see in my field and in so many others is just the failure to make decisions because we're afraid of what will happen uh, if we get it wrong. That, I, I love that. Thank you so much. I, I got so excited because that is something I tell my clients all the time. The only way to guarantee bad outcomes is to not decide anything at all. Um, the book Money with Meaning can be purchased anywhere books are found. Uh, where else can people connect with you, Alex, and the work that you're doing? Yeah, meaningfulgiving.co.co 
is uh, the book's website. And then our firm's website, Building Impact Partners, is buildingimpactpartners.com. Perfect. Thanks so much for being here. This is great. Thanks a lot. We appreciate talking to you. I really appreciate all that you guys are doing. Thank you. My takeaway from our discussion with Alex is that when you look at decision-making, it seems more complex if you scale up and have a lot of wealth or there's a lot of complexity. But at its core, these things scale up and down and that you have to, whether you're talking about giving a dollar or giving $10 million, that looking at what is my purpose, what is it that is meaningful to me, how can I be a good steward of this wealth? And so those are the core decisions you have to decide on before you get to the complexity of what financial structure or trusts or, you know, things I'm going to use, what tools I'm going to use, starting with the why. And I think that scales up and down. That was my takeaway. Yeah. The, the takeaway that I'm walking away with is at the extreme ends of, you know, dollar amounts, very, very low dollar amounts, very, very, very high dollar amounts. All of the things that are concerning to most people sound absurd. But they're they're true. <laughs> they are the same. They're the same core issues um, scaling both up and down. So if we can do what Alex does, which is to find meaning for our money, find the purpose for our money, find the purpose for our life, then those decisions, the tactical decisions, the how decisions become a lot easier when we know the why. You just made a great decision to listen to this episode of Decidedly. Make another great decision and leave us a five-star review wherever you listen to podcasts. We appreciate your support. It helps others find our community and defeat bad decision-making in their own lives. For more daily decision-making insights, check us out at decidedlypodcast.com and on Facebook and Instagram at decidedlypodcast. Thanks again for listening. I'm Sanger Smith, and this is Decidedly. Insights, advice, and comments provided by Sean Smith, Sanger Smith, and speakers identified as part of the Decidedly podcast should not be considered recommendations. Speakers not identified as members of Decidedly are expressing their opinion, and their statements should not be construed as reflecting the views of the Decidedly team. This podcast is produced solely for informational purposes, not personalized advice.